The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. All right, let's go to God's Word together. We are, Like I said, we're in Acts chapter 21, and we're going to look at 15 through 26. On the bulletin there, there's an outline for you. That's helpful. Title of the sermon today, Paul Arrives in Jerusalem. I had the privilege of meeting some new people this morning, um, and including that were first-time visitors or maybe people who've been here before, but I actually haven't got to talk to you yet the first time. So that was always, that's always fun. But for those of you who are new, for whatever reason, just to provide some context, we take this time to study God's Word together as I, I preach through the Bible, and we're going through the book of Acts in the New Testament, the whole book. We are now in chapter 21. So we've made a lot of progress. Um, The book of Acts is a a book written 2,000 years ago by Luke, who was a doctor, a medical doctor, physician, a friend of the Apostle Paul, and actually went on some of the missionary journeys with Paul. And God used Luke as an educated Christian. He was a Gentile who got saved to kind of shadow Paul and write a lot of this stuff down and also... A lot of the information Luke got, he just asked and talked to some of the early Christians. And he, he put this all together in a, a logical, sequential order, showing that how Jesus Christ started his church 2,000 years ago with the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. And then Luke traces how the church grew from uh, the city of Jerusalem and just spread out almost to the ends of the earth in those days. Over the course of from like 30 A.D. when Jesus died to now 57 A.D. So now we're 27 years into this thing, and now we're tracking Paul's ministry, and so the gospel is going out. So that's kind of the big context of where we are at. And we're uh, now in the last seven chapters of this book is going to be the Apostle Paul's ministry, and there's a huge transition because the last seven chapters, Paul is no longer free. He will be a prisoner, sometimes literally in chains, and also confined to uh, different prisons over the course of several years, and it's all accounted and written out for us by Luke the physician. So here we are, 57 A.D. The Apostle Paul has been saved about 20-plus years. He's been on three missionary journeys. This last one lasted three years. Most of it was spent in Ephesus and over in Asia, planted a church there, Heard about, knew about Christians suffering in Jerusalem who needed relief, from the famine, and probably many of them just couldn't get jobs because they were being persecuted by non-Christians. And so Paul collected money from a lot of different churches over in Asia Minor, uh, Macedonia, Achaia, which would be Greece, Corinth, and all those areas for quite some period of time. And apparently collected quite a bit of money as the Christians responded well. The Philippians and Thessalonians and others, they were very generous. And Paul brings an entire team of men with him, those 800 miles over there to Jerusalem. And he's got an entourage with him, these many men that were listed earlier in the Bible, Force chapter 20, I think it was. And it's like he took a representative from each one of the churches where he was at. And so he had like nine men at least with him, maybe more. And they were Gentile. Most of them were Gentiles who got saved and became believers. And they're kind of representing their church and their area and their region. And they're coming with a heart of love 
for these Jewish Christians in Jerusalem they've never met before in their life. And Paul wants this, this offering, this financial gift, to be a blessing to these Jerusalem Jews who are Christians. And one of the things that Paul's heart's desire is is that he wants the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem to fully and totally embrace non-Jewish Christians. Because many of these Jews in Jerusalem, just to be honest, they, they were hung up on prejudicial matters. They were overly proud of and deeply rooted in their Jewishness, even as Christians. Did you know that true born-again Christians can be biased or prejudicial? They can. Peter was initially when he got saved. Even after he got saved, he had... He was a full-blooded Jew, grew up Jewish, grew up in the synagogue, zealous for the law. Then he got saved, became a Christian, and he still the idea of a Greek or a Gentile being allowed to enter in the community of God was distasteful for Peter. And Jesus had to rebuke him. And Peter got the message. And then Paul was chosen as a special instrument. Paul was Jewish, grew up, was trained in Jerusalem, the center of Judaism, uh, yet God so transformed Paul. He used to be a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I mean, he was as Jewish as you could get. He was as zealous for the law as you could get. But when God saved him, totally changed him, made him a new creature, and Paul just had a heart of love for all people, sinners, didn't matter who you were, didn't matter where you were from, how much money you made, what your ethnicity was, what your language was, what race you were from, what religion you practiced or used to practice, didn't matter. He had the gospel of Jesus Christ, and if you believed it and embraced it, you were welcomed. 100% into the family of God. That was Paul's attitude. He was the right man for the job to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He had no hang-ups regarding your background or ethnicity. But these other, some of these Christian Jews in Jerusalem, they had hang-ups, and Paul knew it. So he's thinking, okay, if I could just bring this massive, huge financial gift of relief to these suffering Christians in Jerusalem, then these Jews, these Jewish Christians, they will embrace the Gentile Christians, and then, then God can use that and make them unified and harmonious. That's his heart's desire. That's what he wants. Yet in the back of his mind, he has tremendous fear that that might not happen. And there was good reason for that. For, for 20 years of Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, wherever he went, he's preaching the gospel to Gentiles, to Greeks, to foreigners, to non-Jews. People are getting saved. And everywhere he went, Jews were attacking him, persecuting him. And rumors were being spread even among Jewish Christians over the entire ministry of Paul for 20 years. An undercurrent of nonstop, ongoing rumors about Paul because they just couldn't stand the fact that Paul was deliberately going to non-Jews to tell them that they could know Yahweh simply by believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so even Jewish Christians were listening to some of these rumors, and the rumors were that the Apostle Paul, yeah, he used to be Jewish. He used to follow the Mosaic Law. He used to appreciate the Old Testament and the Hebrew Scriptures. But he's jettisoned that. He's thrown it out the window. And now all he cares about is Jesus and the church. And so he's telling Gentiles, don't believe the Old Testament. And he's telling Jewish people who get saved and become Christians that don't go to the synagogue anymore, go to the church. And if you're Jewish and you're a Christian now, now that you're a Christian, don't circumcise your babies, because that's in the Old Testament, that's Moses. 
As a matter of fact, if you're a Jewish and you're a Christian now, don't do anything in the Old Testament. You don't need to obey or even listen to the Mosaic Law anymore. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers and Deuteronomy mean nothing anymore. It's only Jesus. This was the rumor being spread continually about Paul behind his back. And so now, after three years of not being in Jerusalem, he's coming back. He has a tremendous reputation in Jerusalem. He's known everywhere. His, I think his poster was probably on the post office where a lot of people wanted for a lot of reasons because Paul spent a lot of time growing up in Jerusalem, trained in Jerusalem, trained as a Jew, trained in the law, a master rabbi, part of the Sanhedrin, very influential, top-notch elitist Pharisee, a rising star in that culture, instigated the persecution in the church when it broke out. People were looking to him to take the lead, to snuff out Christianity early on. So that's kind of a reputation he had with a lot of people. Wow, he was a major Christian killer. Some were questioning his true salvation. But then he did get saved, and then he turned his back on the Pharisees. So now all these unbelieving Pharisees and Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, they hated Paul. Oh, he's now a Christian. He bailed on us. He is a traitor. He's gone to the enemy. And we know how the Pharisees and Sadducees in Jerusalem dealt with their religious enemies. They sought to kill them. And it was no different with Paul. They've already tried to kill Paul twice. First time he was in Jerusalem as a, a Christian, and he stayed there about two weeks, and Peter said, man, you've got to get out of here. You're, you're going to get killed. And he did. So this is highly risky of Paul to come back to Jerusalem. He doesn't know what kind of reception. And then also he's hearing uh, gossip about him, and that's why he wrote Galatians and part of Romans and Second uh, Corinthians of just the on, nonstop ongoing gossip being spread about him in the church as an apostle. So even though he's an apostle, a messenger from God, ordained by the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul was 100% human. He was weak. He was finite. He had sin living in him. He had emotions. He was fearful. So he's been saying, as we've been looking at Acts time and time again for a long period of time, I'm going to Jerusalem. I want to go to Jerusalem. I think God's sending me to Jerusalem. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. All the while, he has a little fear about it. Wow. How's it going to go when I, when I get there? What if uh, they don't accept me? What if I give them the gift of money and they don't want it? These, these Jews, these uppity Jewish Christians, and they know that it's from Gentiles and they just shove the gift back in my face. That was a very likely possibility. That's why, let me just read Romans. You don't need to turn there. Romans 15. So Paul is now, he's in Greece. He's on his third missionary journey. It's at the end. He's determined, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to bring this financial gift to the Jewish Christians there. And he's in at the end of his third missionary journey, he's now in Corinth and he's, he's there for the third time and he's spending about three months at the Corinthian church. And while he's there for three months in Corinth, he's writing the book of Romans. And he's, he's writing the Christians in Rome. And here's what he says at the end of the book of Romans. This is like 56 maybe, a year before going to Jerusalem. Now, uh, I, I urge you, verse 30, Romans 15. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters in Christ, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, I urge you, strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Strive together. Agonizo. Agonize. It it was a term used for warfare, wrestling, fighting. Arduous. And that's how he describes prayer. Prayer is arduous. Prayer is a battle. Prayer is not easy. Prayer is hard. Maybe that's why... Not a whole lot of people go to prayer nights or prayer vigils whenever you have it. 
prayer. I admit, prayer is hard work, and that's the word he uses here. Keep striving with me. Keep wrestling with me in prayer because you're not just striving against your own flesh and your own weakness. You are literally batting, battling demonic uh, demons, Satan, in the heavenly uh, in the heavenlies. That's that's really part of the battle that's going on, and that's why prayer is so hard. Strive together. Keep agonizing with me in your prayers. Don't stop praying for me. And I want you to pray for something very specifically, and I want you to pray deliberately and fervently and continuously and arduously about what, Paul? Verse 31. In order that I may be delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea. When I go to bring my gift there, there are Jews there who hate me. They are of influence. They have authority. They have a power to have me arrested and instigate a mob. He knows that. That's what happened with Jesus. That is what happened with Stephen. Pray that I may be delivered. Not that he was lacked courage and just didn't want to die. It was because he had a ministry he wanted to fulfill that God had given him to do. He wanted to see unity in the church. So pray ongoing, strenuously for me, so that, number one, that I may be delivered from those in Judea, the Jews who want to kill me. Number two, pray also in order that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. My service, what is that? The gift of money that I am bringing with these Gentile Christians who got saved, that that will be acceptable by the Jewish Christians there because Paul knew they might not accept it. Ooh, this is dirty money. I was born and raised in the synagogue and in my Jewish home to believe that Gentiles were dirty. We didn't eat and drink from their utensils. We didn't go in their house. That's literally how they were taught. So that's Paul's heart is heavy about this. This is the background. This is what he is thinking. This is the emotional struggle he is going through. This is the spiritual battle that is a reality that dominates his thinking the entire time he is making his way to Jerusalem. Keep that in the forefront of your mind as we read what's going on here in Acts 21. What's going to happen? Are these prayers going to be answered or not? Let's go ahead and look at starting at verse 15. 15 to 26, as Paul arrives in Jerusalem. I broke it up into three parts there as we walk through the text with three points of emphasis as to what happens when Paul heads to Jerusalem. The first point there is that Remember, we left Paul at Caesarea on the coast, about 64 miles north and to the west of Jerusalem. And he was in Caesarea for about a week. And he was staying with Philip, the evangelist, and his four daughters. Luke was with him. And his company, Paul had, Paul had like eight or nine guys with him. So they've been staying with Philip, and so now... They leave Philip, and they're heading to Jerusalem. 70, 70 miles, 64 miles. You can't walk that in a day, so it's maybe a two-day journey. So, verse 15. Heading to Jerusalem, he's welcomed with initial hospitality. So when he first gets there, what a relief, what an answer to prayer. Uh, this is the saints, the saints, the believers, the Jewish Christians in uh, Jerusalem initially welcome him and make him feel part of the family, great, warm hospitality. So this is a tremendous blessing. Let's go ahead and look at it. That's 15 through 20. So after these days, after we spent time in Caesarea with Philip and we heard Agabus, that prophet, say that Paul would probably be imprisoned, 
we, after we spent our time with Philip, we left Caesarea, and we're about to go about 64 miles. Um, and verse 15 says, and after those days, uh, we got ready. Literally, we, we packed up, or literally, we saddled up. We got ready. That's just one Greek word. We saddled up. That's what it means to pack up your luggage or to saddle up. So many times it referred to riding horses. So maybe that's what they did. They saddled up their horses. Remember, he's got like eight or nine guys with him. Um, and after these days, we got ready and started on our way up to Jerusalem. And they're literally going up because Jerusalem is like kind of on a plateau up here as you go to it. And so they're headed on their two-day journey to Jerusalem. Verse 16, and some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us. So it's like everywhere Paul goes, there are converts, there are people that just absolutely love Paul and they become tighter than family and he even sees potential in some of these that maybe he needs to disciple them and they need to shadow him to further the ministry. And so it seems like everywhere Paul goes, he's picking up somebody with him. So he's got Luke with him. And so when he goes to Caesarea, it's no different. He picks up some of the disciples of Caesarea. We don't know how many people. It's a plurality of disciples. So uh, there are people at Caesarea who want to join the team. And so now listen to Paul's team. He's got Luke, Sopater, Aristarchus, Secundus, Gaius, Timothy, Tychicus, Trophimus, uh, Nason, and then the disciples of Caesarea. So now he's got like 15 plus men with him, probably the majority of whom are, get this, Gentiles. Gentiles. You know, the dirty Gentiles. Going to Jerusalem. We know from history that at this time, about 57 A.D. in Jerusalem, that Jewish nationalism was at a peak in Jerusalem. Which, if you were not a Jew, that was probably not a good thing. Coupled with the fact it's feast time around Pentecost. Paul wanted to be there at Pentecost. Which means Jews from all over the world have now congregated in Jerusalem. So there are over a million Jews in Jerusalem. I mean, it is just congested as can be. And these are zealous Jews. Not only that, from the passage we're going to see that many Jews in Jerusalem got saved and became Christians, but it says they remained, they stayed zealous for the law. Zealous, zealous is the Greek word, zeal. Zealous, and it means boiling, burning, hot. In, some, in many cases, it was that they had a little too much zeal still for the Mosaic law, even though they're Christians now. So their identity is still Jewish. And here you got Paul, the, oh, that, the apostle, but he's different from the other 12 apostles who were standard in Jerusalem. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. And then here's Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. He's bringing an entourage of like 15 guys, and they're all Gentiles for the most part. What Jew in his right mind is going to open up his doors to Paul and his team of 14, 15 Gentiles when he gets to Jerusalem during a feast day when it's compacted already. Th that would be hard, very unlikely, very risky for anybody to do that in light of all the variables. Well, God was providential. He was sovereign. Look what he did in verse 16. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also walked the 64 miles with Paul and Luke and their team, making sure they're safe, escorting them all the way to Jerusalem, maybe joining the the festivities at Pentecost, taking us to Manasin of Cyprus. So a lot of times Luke refers to different people, and most of the time he doesn't mention their name for some reason. This lady did that, this guy did this, 
you're like, well, why didn't you mention his name? Well, I guess it doesn't matter. Every once in a while he'll mention their name. And it's just like, why did he mention their name? So anyway, uh, he mentions this guy named Nason, which is uh, the Greek form would be like Jason. He was from Cyprus, which means he was Greek-speaking and probably Hellenistic. So if he was Jewish, he was a Hellenistic Jew who got saved, who's a Christian. So he's, he's kind of like a mix between a Gentile and a Jew from Cyprus. Well, God chose Nason and to use him very specifically in this case because he was a disciple of long standing. He was an old disciple. He was a disciple from the beginning. He was a disciple from the time of Pentecost. This is awesome. This guy has been a Christian for 27 years since the time of Pentecost. And apparently he's been hanging out at the hub of Jerusalem. He has a home there. This is awesome. This is incredibly uh, huge for a lot of reasons. One for Luke. What a resource. I mean, Luke is writing down the history of the Christian church from the time it began at Pentecost. Luke wasn't there. <laughs> How's he going to write down what happened at Pentecost? This guy was there. And God providentially arranges a meeting so that Luke can spend some extended time with Nason, this believer who has been there for 27 years. A lot of Christians split out of the area, were chased out of town. Many of them, no doubt, were dead now. And here's this jewel of a man named Jason, hospitable, loving, seasoned, mature, persevering, right there in the hub of Jerusalem. And Luke's probably got his scroll out and his pen or his hammer and his chisel. Slow down. I only got one letter. As uh, Mason is recounting all the wonderful things that God had done starting the church, the things that Jesus said during those 40 days before he was ascended and went to heaven, and things that Peter said, and what happened with Stephen? Were you there? And why did that happen? He's writing all, that's cataloging all this down. That's why when we're reading this, like, how do they know with such great detail all this stuff that was happening when Luke wasn't around and supposedly wrote this book? Because of the incredible resource of first-hand witnesses that God literally brought into his path, in addition to being led by the Spirit of God and also given some direct revelation and also shadowing Paul. So this guy is a tremendous blessing. Nathan also, he just left another tremendous blessing in where he spent time with Philip because Philip was there in Acts chapter 8. Philip was in the desert with the Ethiopian eunuch and nobody else was around. How do we know that happened? How do we know Philip said this to the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 when nobody was around, including Luke? Well, right here, Luke just spent a week with Philip. Philip saying, Luke, it's amazing, i got to tell you. Did I ever tell you about the Ethiopian eunuch, that guy? Servant of the queen. Oh, man, this is what happened. Luke writing it down. So, very important. There, there are no superfluous insignificant details in God's Word. Everything there we need to know. Not only that, this man was hospitable, and he opened up his home in the heart of Jerusalem so that Paul, along with a bunch of dirty Gentiles, could live there. And that's exactly what happened. They lodge there, the end of verse 16. So a disciple of long standing, saint has been around from the beginning, and he opens up his home, and they are all allowed to lodge there in safety with hospitality, and they are being cared for. This is awesome. So that's going to be headquarters as they arrive in Jerusalem. That was probably alleviated uh, one of the tremendous burdens that Paul had is, man, step number one, where will I stay with my 14 Gentile guys when I get to Jerusalem? That problem. And God provides. God is the great provider. Jehovah Jireh, God provides. And he doesn't provide ahead of time. He didn't tell Paul two or three months ago, I know you're anxious about it and you don't know where you're going to stay. Hey, I'm going to arrange something. I'll send this guy Nason to you. It'll all work out. God doesn't do that most of the time. 
It's like, no, you just go here. You be obedient. You trust me. When you get there, when you're en route, when you're 50 feet away, maybe I will show you where you should stay. Abraham was commended for living his life that way. We walk by faith, not by sight. That pleases God. And so that's what happened here. How exciting. Verse 17. So hospitality from Nason, hospitality from others, verse 17. And when we, that's Luke, when we and Paul and the disciples from Caesarea and all those other guys like Timothy and uh, Secundus and all, all the guys that were with us, when we all had come to Jerusalem in, in the hustle and the bustle and the buzz of Pentecost and a feast day and people everywhere and sprawling and rubbing shoulder to shoulder and all the noise and animals everywhere that are going to be sacrificed, they found a bunch of Christians, no doubt thanks to Nason, who'd been there for 27 years, and probably a key person in the church. And he just had a network of fellowship. Man, we're going to have a fellowship meal, and there's going to be 7,000 people there, or whatever. We don't know. But they, when they got there, God blessed them, and immediately they went to the believers. They went to the Christians, and there were a lot of Christians in Jerusalem at this time. There are thousands and thousands of Jews who became believers by this time, thousands. And so Paul meets the believers, and along with Luke, when they got to Jerusalem, and it says, the brethren received us gladly. The, the unbelievers, I mean, the believers open up their doors, they open up their arms, and they just welcome Paul. Many of these people didn't know Paul. They had only heard of him. They certainly didn't know all these other brothers from foreign lands, and they just welcomed him. Praise God. Do you believe in Jesus? You're part of the family of God. Come on in, brother, sister. And they were warmly received. This is just an awesome reception. It's like step by step. Paul, thinking of that prayer that he wrote to the Romans, just, God, thank you, as he's answering the prayer detail by detail along the way. Being comforted, being encouraged. And no doubt, uh, by this time, probably distributing the money or telling them we have relief for you. We have just a wonderful gift from all these saints. And these men represent the regions from which it was collected. And we love you and we want to give it to you and that your needs would be met and that you would be blessed. And ultimately, it comes from the Lord Jesus Christ, our common Savior. And their hearts were knit together. They were received gladly. The Greek word there is where we get the word hedonism, which means pleased in a good sense. They were pleased. They were incredibly pleased. Verse 18, and now the following day. So this is just great, man. We're, we're staying here at Nason's house. We had great fellowship with the brothers Okay, now, now we gotta go meet the leaders. We gotta go to the elders of the Church of Jerusalem and, and James. James is the head of the elders. We saw that in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council. First it was the apostles. Peter was the head, like elder. They had 12 elders. They were apostles. And then they preached the gospel. And then they started training and raising up other leaders. And it got to a point over the course of decades now where the apostles who were the elders of the Church of Jerusalem have now been displaced by other men who God has raised up. And they are elders and pastors. And so, the, the apostles aren't even mentioned in this story in 57 AD because they're probably not even there. Where are the apostles? They are out all over the place with their missionary journeys and assignments that God has given them to other countries out of that region. And so now it's a plurality of elders. These are Christian elders that have been raised up to lead the church. And James is uh, the head of these elders of this church in Jerusalem. And so, verse 18, and now the following, the next day, uh, Paul 
went in with us. So that's Luke and his whole team went to James. This was, means it was probably in James's home. James has opened up his home before. Paul, we heard you in town. Fantastic. Come, come join us. Come to my house. Come with the brother. Come with the elders. We want to hear what God has done these past three years. Tell us about your ministry. That's exactly why they were meeting. So they met with James and all the elders were present. All the elders were present. Uh, could have been dozens for all we know. The church was so huge. And then, and this is James, not the apostle. This is James, not the brother of John. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. This is James, who was also born of Mary. This is James, who wrote the book of James in the Bible. This is James, the, the brother of Jude, who wrote the book of Jude. This is James, the younger brother of Jesus, the younger half-brother of Jesus. This is the same James, the brother of Jesus, that in John 7 was mocking Jesus when Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, his younger brother, mocking him. This was James who didn't believe in Jesus, made fun of him. So this is that same James who, after Jesus died, rose again from the dead. The Holy Spirit of God convicted James, and the Lord Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, appeared to James, his younger brother. Can you imagine? In a glorified resurrection body, after the resurrection, he appeared to James, the unbeliever, the younger brother who just used to mock him and not believe him. James, it is I, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, risen from the dead. Now do you believe? And he did. And from that time on, James was just absolutely transformed. And he shot to be God's leader in the church of Jerusalem. So much so that he actually was in charge and led the entire very important meeting in Acts 15. He led it over the apostles. He convened. And from that point on, so this is now going on 20 years where James has been the point man and the leader among the leaders. He was an elder, but he was God's man. Five years after this incident we're reading, history tells us that he was murdered for his faith, for believing in Jesus. So that's James and the elders. So Paul meets with them. They haven't seen him in three years. And verse 19, and after he had greeted them, so Paul greets them all, they hug, they embrace. Then Paul gets right down to business and began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles. Do you imagine? This is three, a three-year summation ministry report right there. This must have taken hours or half the day. And Paul recounts everything since the last time in Acts 18 or whatever it was three years ago, since the last time he was in Jerusalem, just very briefly when he just said hi to the brethren after missionary trip number two. Now, for the last three years, here is what happened, probably going in order one by one. Well, here's what happened when I left Jerusalem on my third missionary journey. And I went here and revisited uh, the churches that I established. And, and they're growing and thriving, yet they're subjected to persecution. And then I was able to uh, go to some new places. And I finally got to go to Ephesus, which was my heart's desire. And, uh, and then he talks about his ministry there at Ephesus and all that happened and how he was persecuted and beat up and was there for almost three years and raised up an entire church and on and on he was going and the miracles that he did and the belief and uh, putting an emphasis. Oh, and the, the Jews that were persecuting me, unbelieving Jews. Yeah, some Jews believed, but every time I went to a synagogue, eventually they just wouldn't welcome me. They just kicked me out and just great disdain they had towards me. Um, so that's very sad. Our people, the Jews, 
my heart's desire is that they would be saved, but uh, just many just keep rejecting. But the, the Gentiles, for the most part, very open, very receptive. Many got saved. It's amazing. All over the world, God is saving people. The church is growing. It is expanding, just as our Savior Jesus told us would happen. So it's a fantastic report. It tells it one by one, the things which... Notice, Paul's doing all the ministry. God's using him. He's doing it. He's exerting all the effort. And yet it says, Paul related one by one all the things that God had done. That is amazing. All the, I, mean, God, I thought Paul did it. God had done among the Gentiles through Paul's ministry. That is the Christian worldview. Unbelievers, they do not understand this jargon and terminology or this phraseology. We go out and do something with respect to ministry. It's a good thing. It blesses people. And yet from God's point of view, God did it. Any, any good thing you do as a Christian, you didn't do it. God did it. Any good thing that's truly good that I do, I didn't do it. God did it. God did it through me. So says the book of Philippians. So says this passage right here. Anything bad I do, God didn't do it. I did it. That's the Christian life, really. 100% blame for wrongdoing on me. 100% to the glory of God. That was good and a blessing. And that's what this verse reaffirms. And that was Paul's mindset. That was his attitude. And if you're a Christian, that should be your mindset. And this is very exciting because it's not just because he's an apostle. Every Christian, this is true of. If you get saved, you're born again, you become a vessel. You become, you become a receptacle, a vessel by which God wants to pour and work through you to bless others. We are instruments in the hands of Jesus, our Savior we might be used by him. So, in fact, when we do ministry, and by the way, the word ministry at the end of verse 19, that's service. That's spiritual service. Spiritual works that bless other people, that honor God. And so Paul had been doing ministry. He is a servant. And it was God who was doing it through him. And if you're a Christian, God does ministry through you. If you're available, willing, teachable, humble, and in accordance with God's word, he will work through every single one of us as Christians and do ministry. It's amazing. So that after you've been living the Christian life, you can literally look back and see all the ministry that God has done and accomplished. And it's a tremendous blessing. And sometimes people will get back to you years later. Oh, thank you for when you did this or when I prayed for you, when you prayed for me and when you did this. And as you live the Christian life, you hear that more and more. And sometimes you don't even, wow, I don't remember doing that. But God did it and it made a significant impact in somebody's life. You know what that was? That was God working through you doing ministry, all for His glory. And when people tell you that, oh, that's no problem. No, that's not the right response. Praise God. Praise God. God could use me to bring about that end for you. What a blessing. Hallelujah. All glory goes to the King. And that's what Paul's relating here. All the ministry that God had done among the Gentiles through His ministry, and they were just thrilled. Verse 20 says, And when they heard this, they began glorifying God. Praise God. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for using Paul, the Christian killer, who didn't deserve any of this, to further the kingdom. Tremendous hospitality. Well, then there's a little bit of a turn in the situation here, and it looks like it might go sour, and that's verses 15, 20 and following. So, that's point number two. After he's welcomed with initial hospitality, he's subjected to ongoing hostility. 
So they're celebrating, they're rejoicing, and then all of a sudden they got to change the topic of conversation to something very uncomfortable. And James knows he's got to bring this up with Paul because this problem regarding Paul has been going on for a long time and it has been growing and it's getting worse. It's to a point now, man, we got to do something and we got to start by talking to Paul and let him know he's probably not aware of the severity of this problem and the, the kind of potential division that we have here between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. What a spoiler. Verse 20, second part. So after they were glorifying God, uh, beginning of verse 20 says, and they said to Paul. So here's James, probably the spokesman and the elders. Now this is sobering, man. These are the leaders of the church. Even though Paul was an apostle, he was obligated to submit to the plurality of elders. And we're going to see that here. So James and the elders said to him, well, Paul, you see, brother, you see, have you noticed how many myriads, literally tens of thousands, tens of thousands? Have you noticed since you've been here, you see clearly how many thousands there are among the Jews here in Jerusalem who have been saved and have become Christians? This city is swelling with believing Jews. Not only that, what kind of Jews that are Christians now? And they are all zealous, boiling with fervent heat for the law. For Moses. So it wasn't like they became a Christian. And, oh, I don't need my Old Testament anymore. Oh, I don't need to go to synagogue anymore. Oh, I don't need to go to temple anymore. Oh, I don't need to celebrate the feast anymore. That is not how they thought at all. Even John and Peter, when they got saved early in the book of Acts, they're going daily to the Jewish temple for prayer. Paul himself is still celebrating Jewish feast days. Passover, Pentecost, Acts chapter 16, he circumcises Timothy, his assistant, right out of the Old Testament. Even while being, well, why are you doing that, Paul? I thought those were the shadows of reality. Why are you still fulfilling and abiding by the Old Testament law? What's up with that? Well, the church was in transition. So this is what's going on. Uh, So there are thousands of these Jews. They're zealous for the law, verse 21, and they have been told about you. Rumors are going around. And the rumor is that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles. So you're going out there preaching and all these Jews, once they get saved, you're telling them to abandon, apostatize is the Greek word, from Moses. So this Jew gets saved and you're telling them, don't believe in in Moses anymore. Don't go to synagogue anymore. uh, Don't circumcise your children. That's the rumor. That was not true. Paul was not doing that. Paul wasn't telling anybody not to circumcise. He was not telling Jewish parents to not circumcise your child. As a matter of fact, he was saying just the opposite. He did it himself. He had Timothy circumcised. 1 Corinthians 7, he said, if you're born in circumcision, then keep doing circumcision. If you're not born in circumcision, you don't need to do it. He says this, circumcision is nothing. In the end, it really means nothing. It's external. It's a symbol. That was his attitude about circumcision. So these rumors are vicious. Uh, They are painful. They are real. Satan uses them. It divides the church. It gets ugly. It goes on today. It's been going on for 2,000 years. It's going on in our church. It's going on in all biblical churches. It will continue to go on till Jesus comes again. It is reality. It's sinful. 
Rumors are going out that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake, apostatize from Moses, telling them specifically not to circumcise their children nor walk according to the customs in the Old Testament and the Mosaic Law. And here Paul all the while is like, why would I be doing that when I myself am taking Nazarite vows in accordance with Numbers chapter 6? When I, I preach in Jewish synagogues, I preach out of the Torah in the synagogues. As he's writing New Testament letters, he's quoting the Old Testament as his authoritative source to establish his points. This is a lie. Paul was not anti-Semitic, anti-Jew, anti-Old Testament. So then they're like, it's a dilemma. Wow, what do we do? Verse 22, what then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. All these Jews are going to hear that you have come, and they have this bad attitude. They think the wrong thing about you, Paul. They are not going to warmly receive you. This is going to be divisive. This is going to get ugly. We need to be proactive, and we need to quell this before it blows up. So you can see the beginnings of hostility. Then number three, they have a plan. They propose it to Paul. Just about any other man would have said, no way, I am not doing that. But Paul has tremendous humility. Number three, Paul models exemplary humility. Amazing. In light of his position, his, his position that God's put him in. So here's their plan, verse 23. Therefore, do this that we tell you. That's what the elders uh, told Paul. Do this that we tell you. Boy, that was pretty direct. Paul, you're an apostle. Jesus has given you a specific commission, but you need to submit to, to what... This is... We've prayed about this. We've thought about this. We are informed. We know the details. We know the people. We've laid it before God. Uh, we are unanimous. The Holy Spirit has confirmed that on our hearts. And this, we think this is what you need to do. And, and Paul responded with humility. It's amazing. He made a concession. He didn't make a compromise. He didn't do anything unbiblical. He made a concession. There's a huge difference. What does that mean? Well, Paul had freedom and liberty in Christ that he didn't have to do this. This was not required of Scripture. It was not in conflict with Scripture, but it was not required from Scripture to do what they are asking him about to do. It was a liberty and freedom that he had. And now what he's doing is he's practicing what he preaches in Corinthians and in Romans when he told uh, the strong Christians that if your liberty is going to cause another believer to stumble, then refrain from exercising your liberty out of love for the weaker Christian. That is exactly what Paul is going to do now, out of his love and heart for the weak-minded, legalistic Jewish Christians, he's going to do what they ask him to do. Not only that, he's going to live up to what he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, his evangelistic motif. He said, I, to the Jew, I will be a Jew. To the Gentile, I'll be a Gentile. And, and these were areas uh, not of Scripture, but societal and preference and cultural gray areas. And if I have to act like a Jew, to be accepted by a Jew, to get an audience for Christ and be a witness, I will do that and I will forego my liberty. That, that is true love. That's the highest level of Christian love. That's why his humility is so exemplary for us. So here's what you need to do. We have four men here who are under a vow. They are believers. They are Christians. They have probably taken a Nazarite vow. Numbers chapter 6. It's a temporary vow. The 30-day version. And there were three things they had to do. They had to abstain from drinking of the vine, abstain from cutting their hair, and abstain from touching dead animals. Their vow is now over, and so they need to go to the temple, and they need to dedicate themselves. They need to shave their head, and they need to offer their hair to the priest and have it burned up so that they can be purified. And they also need to offer five things to be sacrificed 
at the temple for the purification. And it was rather pricey. A Nazarite had to offer a male lamb, a female lamb, a ram, cereal, and other offerings with it. One guy. Hundreds and hundreds of dollars worth just for one second. There's four of them. So this is, this is getting excessive in terms of how much it cost. Very expensive. That's why and Nazarite vows were so rare. They were, when a Nazarite vow was legitimately taking place, the whole community knew about it. All of Jerusalem knew about it. And it was a big deal. And there was fanfare and protocol. And they drew it out for seven days. Everybody knew about it because it was so rare. And it was expensive and it was pricey. Herod made a big deal about this when he was there. It didn't happen often. We only know of two people in the Bible who did it, Samson and John the Baptist. And now these four men with Paul. Here's what we want you to do, Paul. They're under this vow. Verse 24. Take these four Jewish believers with you under this vow. Purify yourself, probably in keeping with Numbers 19, a purification rite, not the Nazarite vow because 30 days hadn't transpired for Paul, but a purification rite along with these guys in their... Nazarite vow, take them uh, to the temple and pay their expenses. Pay for all those animals. Shell out a thousand dollars, if you will, please. In order that they may shave their heads and all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law of Moses. So it's a public spectacle, feast time, middle of the day, highly visible. Everybody will know about it. You are participating in this temple rite. Not only that, you're getting purified yourself. You're endorsing these four Jewish men doing this honorable vow right out of the Mosaic law. Not only that, you are footing the bill and everybody will know about it. And then you will win your reputation back, hopefully, among all the believing Jews who are questioning you, your ministry, your ethics, your credibility, and your commitment to the Mosaic Law. That's our plan. Wow. That was quite a demanding plan to throw on him. Verse 25. But concerning the Gentiles uh, who have believed... We're going to stick with what we wrote in Acts 15. They don't have to obey the Mosaic Law. The Gentiles, they're fine. We're just worried about believing Jews. That's who you're witnessing to. So to a Jew, be a Jew. Okay, I will. We wrote, having decided that the Gentiles should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols, from blood, strangled animals, and from fornication. Verse 26, so Paul obeyed. He submitted. He agreed to do it. And as a result... He took the men. He took the lead. He took the initiative. He wasn't just a bystander. He, he was a leader. I will do this out of a heart. Read Romans 9 and Romans 10 and see how much Paul loved the Jews. He would give his life eternally that some might be saved. I can't even comprehend that. So he didn't have to think twice. Absolutely. I understand authority. I will submit to you. I will do this. I will deprive myself of my liberties and freedoms. And I will do this as a heart of love to the Jews. And in this case, it's believing Jews who are weak. Then Paul took the men, the four men, and the next day purifying. So they go to the temple, goes through the rites, begins the process, even purifying himself, pays the bill. They bring all their animals. 
They start slaughtering the animals. Everybody's watching. The word's getting out. People are talking about it. Gossip came in through the grapevine. Hopefully this good testimony will go back out through that same grapevine to the masses of the people. So they went in the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification, following all the rules by the book until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. Amazing. By the book. Tremendous humility. That's what Paul did. Then as a result of that, guess what happened? The hope was that the thousands of believing Jews in Jerusalem would see that and go, oh, wow, that is awesome. I don't believe the rumors anymore, and I take back everything I said that was bad about Paul. He does indeed believe in the Mosaic Law, and I am now a Paul fan. I'm not just of Cephas and Peter and Jesus anymore. And everything was great, and everybody lived happily ever after. Not. And we are going to see next week what happens is this whole thing blows up. And like I said, Paul ends up getting arrested and in chains for the rest of his days. Yet God or Satan actually couldn't silence him either. His ministry continued, although he was in chains. Uh, Just by way of summary thoughts for all of us. Well, how does this apply to us? Well, I've already mentioned a couple. Just it was a good reminder that we do ministry. Actually, God does ministry through us. And that still happens today. And another great reminder here is God calls us to live humbly, denying our freedoms if we have an opportunity to bless a weaker brother. And like I said, that is the highest form of love. God help us to do that. And He's given us the Holy Spirit to make it possible. Let's go ahead and go to the Father in prayer. Father, we thank You for our time together. We thank You for this day of worship with the saints. Again, we thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving it, that we can rely upon it. It is without error. It is true. It's living. Stir our hearts with your Holy Spirit. Help us to be like Paul. Teachable, humble, committed to preserving peace, a heart for evangelism, love for the saints, and seeking to give you the glory in everything. We commit it to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.